John chapter 3, I want us to turn. Our scripture reading has been to an Old Testament portion that our Lord referred to as a symbol, a picture of what Calvary would mean. We begin here in our text in verse number 9. John chapter 3 and verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Are you a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that we do know. Notice the plural pronoun there. He's speaking of as one of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven... But he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. The world is already under condemnation. The Lord Jesus does not have to come to condemn it because our sin has already condemned us. We live in a condemned world that will one day be destroyed because he believed not in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than life, because their deeds were evil. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Why do people not read the Bible? Because the Bible reproves our sin. It's that simple, and it exposes sin, and so people don't read it or explain it away or pretend it's not there. We neither come to the light because his deeds should be reproved, but he that doeth truth, again that word doeth in verse 20 and 21 practices truth, comes to the light that his deeds might be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. In our Lord's interview with Nicodemus, he refers to an incident in Israel's history to illustrate the miracle of the new birth. Nicodemus says, how can these things be, a born again, a new birth? And of all the illustrations the Lord could give, this one is an interesting one. King Arod had waged war against Israel and took captives. The children of Israel pray, crying out to God, asking him to intervene on their behalf, and they vowed a vow, Lord, if you'll deliver this people into our hands, we will utterly destroy their cities, which is what God had commanded them to do, to to totally annihilate sin. And the Lord heard them and gave them an utter victory. They destroyed them and their cities, but after that victory, amazingly, came a time of discouragement among the Israelites, because they were still uh, without the, the homeland, they were still not living in the the places where the Lord had promised them. The journey became hard. Discouragement often brings us to lose our focus and to 
find a face to place the blame for what we're feeling or what we're going through. That's our human nature. And so as they became discouraged, they, they began, began to murmur. The, the Bible says the people spake against God and against Moses. And in speaking against Moses, they were speaking against God. The Bible tells us they're one and the same because he was their God-appointed leader. Questioning, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? At least we had houses to live in there. And in, in, in Egypt and could have died peacefully in those houses. There's no bread or water here. And we hate this light bread that you've given to us, this manna that you've, give, you've provided for us. Can you imagine they look down on the provision of God? The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people as a discipline to, uh, to, to discipline them, and they bit them, and many were dying. This led the people to repent. Sin is a drastic thing, isn't it? Sin is a very ugly, horrible thing, and it takes drastic measures to deal with sin. Just look at Calvary. What a drastic measure of God's wrath against sin and a gracious provision for us. This led the people to repent and to ask the Lord to save them. And this well-known story is given to Nicodemus in answer to his question, how can these things be when Jesus told him of the necessity of the new birth? Because our Lord uses this illustration, I felt that we need to go back and look at it because it is an apt picture of salvation. It's describing salvation. I want us to examine it, and we will look at it both positively and negatively. And so the message will fall into those two categories this, this morning. Negatively, what they were not told to do, and positively, what they were told to do. And in doing so, I hope that we can see God's gracious provision of salvation, the blessed results of obeying the gospel. We saw before the problem that stands in the way of salvation. And that problem is the sin of unbelief, not believing on Christ as the only Savior. Invariably, man wants to do something to re and replace his doing where God says to believe. We see there in verse 10, Are you a master in Israel and knowest not these things? I say unto thee, we speak what we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. You don't believe it. You reject it as the truth. These things have been shown to you by the Old Testament law, the Word of God, and now the Word has been made flesh in your midst, and you refuse to believe. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? What are those earthly things that our Lord is referring to here? That which pertains to this life. The Bible is filled with principles and guidelines to live, to regulate our living in this life. Do this and live. Do this, we see it throughout the, the Old Testament, the moral law of God given to us, not only to show us God's holiness and our sinfulness, but this is how life should be lived. That which pertains to this life. I've shown you earthly things clearly and literally how to live life in this life. And how God says this present life is to be lived. And then those heavenly things, the, the mysteries of God, the spiritual truths of heaven, what they're doing in heaven, the afterlife, and, and prophecy, those eternal things. And why is it that we're more concerned with 
and interested today about those things than the earthly things that God has given us, which are readily understood, to which we can put into practice and obey, give us something else. Not unlike the children of Israel, they were given all they needed in the manna. We want something else. And so often people, I know what the Bible says, but what about this? How many angels are they? Who, where did Cain get his wife? What's going to happen? How, what about the streets of gold? And they want to know all about the mysteries of spiritual things not fully revealed to us when the earthly things. And Jesus says, I've given you a whole book of things that you can understand and you don't receive them. How would you receive and believe uh, the, the, more, the weightier things, the, the, the meatier things of the Word of God if you've not received? And I think you'll find this is a method of Bible interpretation as you live up to the light that God gives you and as you practice what you know that He's already given, He will unlock mysteries. He will unlock to you the rest of the Word of God. Why would He waste those spiritual things on those who don't care about what they've already been shown? We ignore the daily, the practical ways of obeying and serving the Lord. I've often wondered, people will often come to me, what is God's will for my life? As if I had a crystal ball and could tell them, don't come to me and ask me that. I can tell you what I know. And I, my question is always this. Well, what are you doing today to serve the Lord? I will find, you will find that if you're doing what you know to do, you'll be exercising the inclinations, the spiritual gifts that God has given you to do. And if you continue doing that, you will find God's will. The door of God's will will open wide for you. But people want to speculate. They want to talk about it. They want to know if they feel about it, what it looks like. I don't know if that's for me, as if they were choosing some kind of job or something. They ignore the practical ways of serving the Lord. Jesus said, give a cup of cold water, and it won't go unnoticed in the day of judgment. You'll be serving the Lord. I can do that, can't you? I mean, I, I might not could divide the, the, the mysteries of how many angels can sit on the pin's head, but I, I can give a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord. And if I do what I know to do, I can give somebody a tract. I might not can divide all the, the mysteries of certain things, but I can tell someone the love of Jesus Christ and explain it to them and show them the love of Christ. We ignore the daily practical ways of obeying and pleasing the Lord now in this body. There are people, they'll go all over the world on a mission trip, but they wouldn't go across the street to give a tract to a neighbor. They will minister to the people of Africa, but not West End. They will do all kinds of things and, and, and raise all kinds of money to do something else, somewhere else. But the gospel and the need of the gospel is all around us, folks. Just look out your, your door and praise the Lord. We, we praise Him for missions and we need missions. But what about the mission field? What about the earthly things, the things at hand that you know to do right now? Jesus has the authority to, to speak so definitively because, do you know why? And he's showing this to Nicodemus. You've called me good master. He, by his questioning, he's showing Nicodemus he's much more than a noted teacher in Israel. He's speaking so definitively here because he is the only one who has ascended into heaven. To go into the very presence of a holy God was utterly impossible until Jesus came. Unsaved man can't do that. Only one who has been there and knows these heavenly things can report them with authority and accuracy and veracity. And Jesus is saying, we are speaking what we do know. 
I have been in the presence of God the Father and God the Spirit from eternity past. I'm the eternal Son of God. What I'm telling you, you can bank on. We speak what we do know. Heaven is Jesus' hometown. He knows the way around there. Uh, He knows the secrets of that place. He has come down to show us and to tell us how to get there. And here in John 3, he puts, he's just months away from ascending back to his Father. The word ascending is used in the Scripture only of Jesus Christ. It is used of no other person in the Scriptures, only of Jesus Christ. No one will ever be described as ascending. What about Enoch, someone might say? I got you, preacher. What does it tell us about Enoch? Hebrews 11 verse 5 tells us he was translated. He was mysteriously taken to heaven. He was translated, but he didn't ascend to heaven. Someone else might would say, what about Elijah? 2 Kings 2.11 says Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. Yes, that's exactly what it says. He went up in a whirlwind into heaven. It does not say that Elijah ascended physically from this life into heaven. What about the saints, Brother Lamb, who are alive at the returning of the Lord Jesus Christ? 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17 says that they will be caught up. Yes, that's exactly what it says. We use a word, an English word for the Latin word rapio, which means to to rapture or to catch up, to snatch it away. But only of Christ does the Bible say that he ascended. This is because He alone is the Savior. No one else is the Savior. He is exclusively the preeminent one. Unless you think I'm straining here, that in all things He might have the preeminence. He leads the way. He will lead the the, the train of all the redeemed into heaven. That's why we must examine His every word. Notice in verse 13, He that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven, the one who came down, the one who's speaking to you, Nicodemus, is the one who came down from heaven. This is telling us of his deity. He is God. He can speak with all heavenly authority because he's been there. He's seen it. He knows what he's speaking of. He knows the mysteries of what he's unfolding here. All the attributes of the Godhead are seen and declared in Jesus Christ in John's Gospel. Then our Lord emphasizes to Nicodemus the absolute necessity of the new birth. You must be born again. It's not a good idea, and it would, you need to think about it. What does he, he, he gives the command, you must be born again. I want you to know that the call to the gospel is a command. Repent and believe the gospel. When Jonah entered the city of Nineveh, he commanded that all men everywhere repent. It is a command, and that's why Jesus starts with, if you and I were doing personal work with Nicodemus, we might not have started where Jesus did, but I will tell you, we ought to. Start with the questionings that people are asking. When you're trying to ascertain where they are spiritually, begin to ask them questions. How do you think a person would get to heaven? Oh, most people say, well, I think you're being a good person. You pay your bills and don't treat people mean, and everybody's nice to each other and all that. You begin there. You ask them, you begin with their own words. You've said this. Let's see what the scripture has to say. Jesus Christ began with Nicodemus and began, he began asking, how can someone do the things that you're doing? Well, you must be born again. 
How can these things be? Respond to the questions. And Jesus begins to deal with Nicodemus, and he shows him the absolute necessity, the requirement of a new birth, if anyone is to, to get to heaven. You see, we can't, something had to take place, and all those people I mentioned, Elijah and Enoch and the saints who are alive and remain, something will must gloriously take place, or having had taken place, for them to enter there. Flesh and blood cannot... Enter the kingdom of God. So, so something drastically has to take place. You must be born again. We are dead in our sins, and we must miraculously be raised to new life, given a brand new nature, a, a nature that is, that is attuned to God and is attuned to the fact of our sins and is sensitive that has been dead because of our, our sinful nature, we must be given a new nature. And this gift must come as a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Christ's sinless life and His obedience and His work on the cross, paying our sin is the foundation upon which this, this salvation rests. Make no mistake, Christ had to be lifted up. And that's why he uses this Old Testament illustration. Nicodemus knew the Old Testament, and so God takes him there. You would do well to do the same as you're witnessing to people. Always use the Word of God. He takes him back to what some may think is an obscure portion of Scripture, a very notable one, but in relating it to conversion and the new birth, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Christ had to be lifted up. The only way atonement, the payment of our sin, could be made is for Christ to die for our sins. The Jews around Nicodemus were looking for a Messiah and a throne lifted up above the Roman government. They hated the domination of Rome, and they were looking for a lifting up. The Messiah would lift them up above the nations as they once had been regarded. They were looking for to, to be lifted above Roman rule, like the throne of David when David had a kingdom of peace and the most renowned king of his day. And the sovereigns from other countries would come and marvel at David's kingdom, at the riches of his kingdom, his house. And remember what the Queen of Sheba said when she got back home. What we heard was not only true, they didn't do it justice. The half has not been told about what uh, Jerusalem is like. The, uh, the unbe- the cause of unbelief, the problem of man's sin and the, the need for atonement is, is often missed. By now they had devolved into a works-based righteousness of Jesus' day, of religion and salvation that can be earned. When Moses cried out to the Lord to save the Israelites from the fiery serpents, God commanded him to make a brass serpent and put it on the end of a pole and to hold the pole up high, and to walk through the midst of the children of Israel, and all who looked to the serpent would be healed. What an amazing story that is. It's always interested me. And I've always had, before I really came to know the Lord as a boy, and I'd read that story, I often wondered about it. They must obey the simple command. The serpent, of course, is the symbol of Satan, isn't he? Because... The Satan used the serpent's form in the Garden of Eden to deceive Eve. In fact, the first promise of the gospel is linked in, uh, with, with a serpent and him being defeated by Christ. The poison of a snake's bite 
infiltrates the body's entire system and leads to death. And so death, sin, permeates every part of our lives, our minds, our wills, our emotions, our bodies. These bodies are dying, they're decaying, the cells of our body will one day lead either to disease and death or ultimately to our bodies ceasing, just absolutely wearing out and dying. The death process is in all of us, and it came about because of sin. God created man to live eternally. Bodies that would would not die, would not fade away. And praise His name, salvation will one day give a glorified body, just like He intended it originally, that will never die, will never fade away. Notice that Moses didn't take a dead snake or kill a snake and lift it up and put it on the pole because the picture of salvation would absolutely be marred. One sinner can't die for another sinner. One snake can't die for another snake. That would have pictured judgment on the cross on the sinner instead of on the Savior. No, make a brass serpent. The brass serpent was made like into one of the serpents In their midst, Romans 5 verse 8 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. The flesh was not able to perfectly keep the law. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus Christ was very much like us, but there's so much about Him that was very different from us. He was absolutely God, wasn't He? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. The serpent represented the Savior being made sin for us, being made the curse for us. Brass in the scripture is a picture of judgment. The altar in the Old Testament where the animals were slain and sacrificed, it was a brazen altar, an altar of brass. When God will not hear from heaven because of unrepentant sin, Deuteronomy 28 verse 23 describes the heavens as being as brass. It is a judgment of God when people refuse to repent of their sin for their prayers not to be heard. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The heavens are as brass. That is a symbol of God's judgment. It's no mistake that God told them to make a brazen serpent and put on the end of that stick. It wasn't one of the snakes from their midst. It wasn't a dead snake or a living snake that was suffering. It was a brass snake. I want us to notice then in our message here negatively what they were not told to do. It's it's very important here because in salvation it's amazing what people twist it to be or not to be. We need to know what they were told not to do and then we need to look at what they were told to do and see the picture that Christ is painting here for Nicodemus and for us. We're in this conversation too, aren't we? Nicodemus is just our spokesman. We're standing behind him saying, yes, ask him. We need to know these things. What were they not told to do? By the way, these things are all human tendencies. These are things that we're prone to do. Number one, they were not told to make some medicine for their wounds, were they? That's not what Moses, God could have made a medicine, a balm, a salve, an ointment, drink some water, some kind of liquid. They were not told to make some medicine. Their wounds were were caused by sin, and there's no human remedy for sin. 
There's not a medicine you can take that will change the sinfulness of your heart and mind. There's no medicine, there's no philosophy of man, there's no education, there's no course that you can take that would change your innate propensity to sin and to sin atrociously before a holy God. There's, there's no medicine for that. The soul cannot be operated on at UAB. They can do microsurgery down here. They can do all kinds of amazing things that we cannot even imagine, but they cannot operate. There's not an operating uh, section. Our brother here works down there. There's not an operating place for the soul, is there, David? There's no, there's no place where the soul can be scrutinized and located and operated on, but the Scripture says the Word of God is alive, it's quick, it's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and is a discern of the thoughts and the intents of the heart and it pierces and divides the joints in the marrow of what? Not the body, but the soul, the inner man. So accurate is this surgical tool that the Holy Spirit takes. There's, there's not a medicine that you can come up with. They were not told to make a salve or a medicine to, to save them from the snake's bite. Human medicine cannot heal a sin-sick heart. Notice also, they, they were not told to do good deeds to, to the ones around them who were dying and, and who were, the, the poison was spreading throughout their bodies. They were not told to go and nurse the ones who were, uh, were dying of their wounds, and in so doing, they would feel better about themselves and that they would become better too. That's not what they were told to do, to go put or salve on the ones who would be bitten, and in so doing, they would get well. That's what religion tells us. Do the best you can. Do good deeds. And you'll win your way into heaven. It'll, it'll stand in for, for your sin. No amount of helping others would help them dying of the venom of sin that was in their bodies as well. We're all dying sinners attempting to help other dying sinners. We're going to have to have a miracle, folks. We're going to have, have to have something outside of us, outside of what we can come up with. Notice that they were not told to kill the snakes. Let's just get rid of all sin in this world and be nice to everybody and then sin will be taken care of. You know as well as I do, that's an impossibility. In the most sacred, most holy thing, Satan will enter in. In your private time before the Lord, the, the sin of pride will come in and rob you. Oh, look how good I am today. I'm having this private time and I'm praying. And you can, pride can get in and destroy the very worship of God. There's, there's no area that's so holy, so sacred that Satan won't slither into with his ugly self. We all, if we're honest, have to fight against this flesh and the sinful pride that flows through our veins, even as redeemed saints of God. We have to slay on the altar every day that pride, that station of self, of exalting ourselves above someone else. We, we're not told to kill the snakes because, you know what? The snakes were like the mythological snakes of old. You cut off their heads and ten would grow back. Every snake they killed, look around the corner, and here comes some more. It, we wouldn't save the dying to kill the snakes, even if they could. The ones that were dying had already been bitten, they were dying. You cannot, it's impossible to eradicate sin from this earth. But even if you could, what about those who are already dying? Those who are dying, the ones already infected. This work of the flesh only leads to more sin. Because human efforts cannot kill sin. Notice that they weren't told to do some religious exercise. That's what man does. Do this and live, the law commands. 
go and, and do this. Do, why didn't they, they didn't sprinkle anything or, or pray anything. They didn't send in an offering. They didn't do some human deed to end the dying effects of the serpent's bite. They weren't commanded to give anything to stop the serpent's bite or to say certain words or to go through some kind of religious rigmarole. They were not told to go to Moses and get his help. Go and, and talk to Moses. They didn't look to Moses himself. Moses delivered the word of God to them, didn't he? Look and live. We're going to pass among you with this brass serpent. Look, All who look to the, to the serpent by faith, who believe what I tell you, look to the serpent, will be healed. If you refuse to do so, you will die in your condition. Moses was given the law and is referred to as the lawgiver. But he could not save them. He could not deliver them from this death that was pervading through the host of Israel. Through this awful sting of the fiery serpents. No preacher can save you. No, no man can save you from your sin. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. There's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God. What an amazing, unusual, glorious provision God did for the children of Israel in that that time of the snakes invading them, them, them dying of the serpent's bites. Oh, how gracious he was to provide for them this way. The only way that they could be delivered. Not by works of righteousness. It is the gift of God lest any man should boast. I was sharing with the, the teachers at our staff meeting the other day, if you have a box of maggots, as gross as that is, how could one of those maggots brag on themselves as being better than another one? You know, I'm a better maggot than you are. I'll have you know I'm going to be a fly one day. That's what we all are. Sinners, depraved. A box of maggots here today. If there's anything different about us it'll be a miraculous work of the spirit of god that changes us and transforms us into something we could never be in our own natures he didn't tell them to do some religious thing and notice that they weren't told to look to themselves that's the philosophy of today get better examine yourselves come to know yourselves they weren't given a mirror and told to look deeply at yourself and, and appreciate yourself and fall in love with yourself because within they had the power to overcome any obstacle that's not what they were told to do they could have easily made little brass mirrors and pass them out to everybody and say look to yourselves but that wouldn't have done anything would it look at myself dying a dying sinner a picture of myself To be preoccupied with our sinful selves only leads to deeper problems of sin in the soul. So we've seen negatively what they were told not to do, but I want you to to look at what they were told to do, what they were instructed to do. Let us examine, secondly, and positively, what they were told to do. The problem here we've already seen is they're all condemned. They're all equally condemned. Would you agree? In that text, in that, that illustration, they were all being bitten They were all headed for death. And the Bible tells us we're all condemned. We see that word condemned all through this passage. It's a horrible word when a judge pronounces the the person who's been on trial condemned. We find you guilty. And he 
bangs the gavel and condemns them. What a horrible, horrible word that word is, condemn. The problem here, though, is unbelief. Verse 12 said, if, you, if I told you earthly things you, and you believe not, and then he says, you shall believe. And we notice there in verse 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The problem here is unbelief. The refusal to take God at his word and to believe the gospel, the good news. Don't you think it was good news when someone says, hey, we've got a remedy, the snake bites, are all, the poison is going away, all those who are dying will be healed. Just look to this brass serpent as unreasonable and as unusual as that sounded, wouldn't that have been a good news if you had no other hope whatsoever? Notice that they lifted up the brass serpent. And whose idea was that? That wasn't man's idea. Man would have done something else, I can guarantee you. Pass it around, let everybody touch it, rub it on them, bow before it. Man would have done all kinds of things, but what did the prescription came from God because... When God gives an illustration, He fully means it in every sense of the word. Lift up the serpent in your midst. This brass serpent was to be placed on a pole and lifted up in the midst of the children of Israel. It was accessible. All could see it. If we pass it around, and some of them have it over here, if there's a crowd of people, we might not be able to see the serpent. If it was just for this group over here, I know the tendency of humans, they would hoard it to themselves and keep it for their families and say, no, we've got the serpent now. That was not the way. He equally lifted it up. So no matter where they were in the camp, it was a high on a pole, lifted up for all to see. All could look to that. All could look to it. The rich had no more opportunities than the poor. And the feeble person had no more, was no, would not be held back in the brass serpent being lifted up. The old and the young, all were equally privileged. Look at the promise when, in, in back in our text. I'll read it to you in Numbers chapter 21, verse 8. It shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Oh, what, a, what good news that is. Those of you who've had a doctor tell you this situation seems hopeless. My wife and I have sat in a doctor's office a specialist, as high as you can go, and then look at us and say, there's nothing that can be done for your situation. We know of nothing that can be done. Those are the most heartbreaking words that a human being can hear. When hope is gone, and there's nothing, you don't know anybody, you can't pay to have a test done, there's not a specialist on earth that has the answer. But someone comes in, in our situation, that's exactly what happened. A specialist found out about our situation and said, I think I can do, I'm going to do this. It was one of the happiest days outside of my salvation in my life when they told me there was hope for my wife. We're going to do this procedure and uh, we think it will work. Oh, the good news of a remedy when there was no hope, no human hope in sight. Oh, the soul was condemned. We're on our way to hell to torment. Then the good news came. Look to Jesus Christ. They must look away from themselves. If you look to yourselves, you'll not heal yourself. If you continue and grovel in your grief, that will not heal you from ourselves and look from our sin and we look to Jesus Christ. As the pole was lifted up, the weakest had access. The sickest 
could look. The thief on the cross dying could look to Jesus Christ, couldn't he? All he could do was to look in faith to Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus tell him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, the good news of the gospel. It breaks all the burdens. It takes away all the the man-made problems and obstacles and the tangled webs of sin that we've woven. It can break every chain and give glorious hope and liberty to those dying. The dying could look, couldn't they, to the pole? They didn't have to run to it. They didn't have to walk. They didn't have to lift it up themselves. All they had to do was look. A.W. Pink says, Just as the bitten Israelites were healed by a look of faith, so the sinner may be saved by looking to Christ by faith. Saving faith is not some difficult and meritorious work which man must perform so as to give him a claim upon God for the blessing of salvation. It is not on account of our faith that God saves us, but it is through the means of our faith. It is in believing we are saved. It is like saying to a starving man, He that eats of this food shall be relieved from the pangs of hunger and be refreshed and strengthened. Eating is no meritorious performance, but from the nature of things, eating is the indispensable means of relieving hunger. To say that when a man believes he shall be saved is just to say that the guiltiest of the guilty, the vilest of the vile, is welcome to salvation if he will but receive it in the only way in which from the nature of the case it can be received. And that is by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means believing what God has recorded about His Son in the Bible. The moment a sinner does that, he's saved. Just as God said to Moses, it shall come to pass that everyone who is bitten, when he looks upon it, he shall live. That's a promise, isn't it? He shall live. Did you know that man became lost by a look, didn't he? He looked upon the fruit, and the look led to a lust, and the lust led to actually the partaking of the sin. It was that look that led to the fall of man. Our Lord intervenes and says this, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God, and there is none else. Just as there was one brass serpent at that day for those dying of the serpent's bite. There was only one remedy. God says, look unto me, all ye ends of this earth, and be ye saved. I am God, and there is none else. I want you to know today that there's one God, there is none else. God has spoken. Jesus said, I have come down from the one who has descended will ascend. I'm the only one that's done that. Only one in the, the world that's ever ascended is Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, he says, what we do know and what we have seen, what the eternal triune Godhead in eons past, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, I'm bringing that down to you. You can rest in me because I'm the one that did that. I was there. I'm the one that volunteered to come and be the Savior. Oh, what a news. What message. What good news that is. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. 
we saw all these things we don't told not to do or don't not told to do. The one thing we're told to do is look and live. Have you looked to Jesus Christ? You can waste time today looking at your sin and you'll just become a very discouraged person. Is this all there is to it? You can look to philosophies and that's just all there are, people's opinions. We need a more sure word than that. We need assurance. You know that you're dying. We know that it's appointed a man once to die and after this the judgment. What is the remedy? The remedy God has provided as Jesus Christ was lifted up I will draw all men to me, I be lifted up. We've attempted this Lord's Day by the preaching of the gospel to lift him up. Aren't you glad that it's not to the smartest or those who have money or those who can run and obtain or who can make their own brass serpent and have the right, all the different things that man would make up? Jesus Christ said, look and live. Have you looked to him by faith? turning all your heart's desire toward the Lord Jesus Christ and bowing before His sovereign mercy and grace. Look to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a glory? All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. What a promise that is. No matter who we are. That's all of us. No matter what we've done, where we've been, what we are. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. That's just another way of saying looking to Jesus Christ alone. Looking to Him. You can look. It doesn't take a degree in theology to look, does it? Now, there's all kinds of things that will keep you from looking. We've looked at them. Pride. Religion. Condemnation. Your own condemnation. Others' condemnation. The condemnation of God is the fact that we're all sinners. But He says, come. You come to Me. And I will set you free. Who the Lord sets free will be free indeed. Isn't that good news today? Let us pray.